Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today's podcast is presented by Pago. Pago is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Pago. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. But apply today, become a member, and really be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-t-g-o dot c-o. And don't forget to tell your listeners to add Monster Legend Podcasts in the How to Hear About Pago section of this application. Okay. So don't forget to mention me when you sign up, people. In the dark of the night Comes a shooting in life To guide you All along with twisted words In your mind, darkest goals And the whispers in the trees Blow a dark haunt in this Buzzed through you Telling tales, young and old I hope that you enjoy the show Uh, hello and welcome. This is Monster Legend Podcast. I'm your host Tanner, and today we're in South Dakota. Today I have a special guest, uh, Miss Katie Smith. Hello, Katie. Hello. What's up? So, what do you do, Katie? Um, what do I do? Uh, I do a little bit of everything because of the pandemic and layoffs and everything. I'm between jobs right now searching, but I have plenty of time to do research on my random interests through mostly anthropology. Um, some things you've been researching lately about anthropology. Um, well, as it relates to this podcast, I've been kind of brushing up on my Roman and Egyptian mythology and uh, approaches to the study of folklore and myths and legends. And then at the same time, I've also been looking into um, the identity formation of nationalities and issues and stuff like that. I'm kind of all over the place. Has there been any like crossover between Egyptians and Roman mythologies? Um, yeah, actually, the there's information about Roman myths borrowing from Egyptian myths, and uh, I mean, obviously, Greek as well. Yeah. Sorry, what the heck? Sorry, I have a little issue there. No problem. Um, but all when you're looking at mythology and folklore kind of as a whole, it's 
reminiscent of each other. The stories seem to relate a lot. You get a lot of, uh, I guess what you could call, or what Carl Jung would call archetypes. You know, you have characters that are very similar to each other's stories. Um, the biggest interest for me is the way that folklore, all these stories, they serve to teach us things. Yeah. And the, especially from the ancients, it's very mysterious. It's um, kind of almost unattainable in a sense, especially when you're looking into Egyptian mythology and creation myths, especially things kind of diverge or overlap. You get different gods and goddesses that have the same names or they're a combination of a couple of them, um, which is one thing that I kind of like about studying folklore is that it's easier not to get too hung up on classifications and definitions, which when you're looking into academia, like those things are very important when you're trying to discuss things, you have to agree yeah. on definitions. But um, looking into mythology, you can kind of more get wrapped up in the story and how that would reflect the society's ideals. Definitely. I think it's, I think it's common, like, there's, I don't know. I'm trying to think. Um, <laughs> it's like, you get all these common things in throughout mythology and interesting how to I think like like pyramids and stuff are weird mm -hmm. how, like all these cultures have like this structure and it's always a creation say always a creation folklore and mm -hmm. how it's different like how in here in America there's like the giant turtle story and and Gibson and I'm not sure the different creation myth, but I know in Greek it's like the, that one guy who made him out of clay. I forget his name. Is, um, who like he gave the guy whoever gave him the the human's fire from the Greek mythology. You know, I should be able to come up with the name, but I can't right now. Yeah. <laughs> South Dakota is interesting. It's a lot of like Lakota. Like there's a lot of stuff about like white buffaloes and thunderbirds and. Mm -hmm. Sioux Indians. Yeah. Do you ever find like there's like certain like vocal like depending on like when like like how. Um, um, like warlike the, the culture is, like how different mm -hmm. the folklore is. Depending on how warlike it is? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, the further you go back uh, before you get, um, I guess what you'd call really strong state governments like we have, the myths that come out of those more ancient areas are very violent. Um, 
Roman mythology, a lot of the gods are super rapey. <laughs> yeah, super rapey. Um, Egyptian, you have a lot of incest. There's a lot of violence there, too. It's very graphic. Uh, but I think that kind of just those archetypes exist in a lot of things. Um, the more modern versions, I guess, they're more akin to urban legends. Yeah. So once you, especially because folklore, it's interesting because it, you know, predates writing. There's a connotation of oral traditions throughout all these stories. So the more you try and modernize these stories and put them in a way that it can teach lessons to people living today or people living more recently, the, that violence is used to either teach a lesson or it's kind of dialed down a little bit to make it an easier story to swallow. Yeah, definitely. Like that's more or less acceptable in our society than would be acceptable in, you know, these older societies. Yeah, it reminds me of like the Hercules, Disney, the Disney version of Hercules. How some mm -hmm. different from the original, like the original story, like how he killed his kids and his dude's basically raped his mom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Disney is like always been a great example of how these stories get modernized or changed for younger audiences that we, you know soon can't handle these certain um ideas i mean grim fairy tales yeah. and disney the, Huge the, the little mermaid too i think it in the original version like she crowned the prince or something i think i've read like she's like a tongue in the grim's fairy tale what don't they cut out her tongue in the grim fairy tale i can't remember i think so Talking about one with um, what's his face? Who did play Joker? That one, that version. Oh, um, Brothers Grimm. Brothers Grimm. Matt Damon and Heath Ledger, right? Yeah. That movie freaked me out, man. Not gonna lie. Yeah. It was like this. The Queen was really scary. <laughs> A little weird. I don't know. Creep me out. But um, I did notice when I did a quick search of uh, South Dakota, just to have an idea of what you might be talking about. And one of my favorite archetypes in myth and folklore is the trickster. Yeah, rabbit, the coyote. Yeah, I've known from like some Native American studies that the coyote is in a lot of indigenous North American folklore. Yeah. And the Lakota Sioux have it too. Cody's are pains in the butt. They don't have to get in stuff. <laughs> yeah, the trickster is one of my favorite archetypes. Me too. Uh, territory of present day South Dakota was occupied 10,000 years ago. Wow. Forever ago. <laughs> They've been here much longer than us. A year ago, or that's probably like 
when they were coming after they were migrating from the ice bridge thing about that time don't ask me for terms i remember concepts yeah <laughs> the ice bridge thing and um uh, there was a first between uh, 1682, Rene Robert Cavalier, so can't read, I can't read French, uh, the first European to visit Upper Louisiana. Uh, the French continued to explore the area in the 18th century and sold it to the United States. Louisiana Purchase, yeah. uh, that's Missouri River, they set up a sort of territory in 1861 with uh, no greater population than 1,000, and the population of the Sioux was about 25,000 between the Big Sioux and Missouri Rivers. And uh, there's some war between the U.S. government and the Sioux in 1854 and 1890, um, ending with a massacre at Wounded Knee. Uh, an episode that included the military conference of the region's Native Americans. The Church of Gold and Black Hills during the 1870s. This, this is probably Gold Rush. Um, this passive. Uh, despite the Second Treaty of Fort Lamarain in 1868, which guaranteed people's exclusive possession of land west of the Missouri River, miners formed the area. In the Sioux Agreement of 1867, Congress forced the Sioux groups to give up their claims to the Black Hills and its surrounding area. That's crazy. The Sioux's uh, tribes initiated a lawsuit in 1887, which was not finally decided until 1980. What? That's a... <laughs> the crap? 100 years? <laughs> That's some bull crap. God. That's the judicial system. For real. That, taking the land without compensation was illegal. The court authorized the federal government to pay Sue more than $100 million for the land. That's kind of low. <laughs> Trials refused to accept the settlement, however, unless Congress returned all federal lands in the Black Hills, amounting to 1.3 million acres. Uh, which the Sioux regarded as part of their heritage and as their basic treaty right. Again, the 21st century, the Sioux have still not accepted a monetary settlement from the U.S. government. Yeah, for real. I wouldn't either. <laughs> uh, the gold rush was followed by a flood of settlers in the eastern. Yes, yeah, the gold rush. Uh, Swollen population from about 80,000 to 325,000 between 1878 and 1887. Rapid City emerged as the main gateway to the area. Weird name, City. Uh, Rail lines reached Missouri River in the late 1870s. By 1886, tracks had crossed the state and reached the Black Hills. Uh, this rapid expansion led to calls for division a territory at the 46th parallel of separate statehood for the southern half. So uh, this northern half in the U.S. Congress favored creation of a single state. The southern half held constitutional conventions in 1883 and 1885 at the later the state of Dakota was established. 
dual statehood based on division between the 46th parallel received congressional approval in 1989 in both North and South Dakota were admitted to the Union simultaneously. During the 1890s, the appeal of the populist movement led the state temporarily and briefly away from the Republican Party. At the turn of the 20th century, many South Dakotans then embraced the progressive movement. Heir of much of the populist reform agenda, in 1898, South Dakota became the first state to adopt the referendum and initiative as electoral devices which voters could express their wishes regarding government policy or proposed legislation. From 1917 to 1919, a state-funded rural credit farm loan plan, a city of state hail insurance, a state coal mine, and a state cement plant were established. Uh, after initial settlement ended in about 1920, the majority of South Dakotans were living in enclaves on farms, ranches, small urban centuries, or Indian reservations. By 1930, the population of South Dakota had reached 690 100,000, uh, more than the double the number of residents at statehood. The worldwide Great Depression of the 1930s were especially difficult for residents of South Dakota. Much of the agricultural land was affected by drought and dust. Many South Dakotans found work with the Works Progressive Administration and the Civilian, Civilian Conservation Corps. Others were forced to leave the state to find work just the population drop specifically did not increase again until after World War II. Following World War II, a federal government development plan known as the Pick Sloan Plan erected major dams on the Missouri River and numerous smaller dams on the tributaries. This project flooded hundreds of square miles of Native American land and forced the reflection of some 1,000 extended family households. From 1880 to 1934, the cultural life of the Sioux population was hampered. The Sundance, the core religious event for many Plains peoples, was criminalized by the federal government from 1883 to 1934. Although it has been reported that the Sundance was held principally during the period many reservation members shifted to the former religion of blended Native American and Christian traditions. Resulting social pressure caused worship involving the sacred pipe and peyote, a type of cactus plant used in the rituals of the Native American church, to be driven underground. The quality of life for a Sioux in the South Dakota were improved greatly as a result of New Deal relief programs during the Great Depression years, but sharply declined throughout the 1950s when federal support was withdrawn. By the 1950s, South Dakota had embraced a more conservative bent, and many programs that benefit Indians were discontinued. Those were in the Great Society programs of the 1960s. From the mid-1940s until 1960, many Americans left their reservations to pursue economic opportunity elsewhere. Starting in the 1960s, however, many tribes members returned to their reservation. As American Indian empowerment movements across the country began to gain strength, meanwhile, a migration of the non-Indian population from rural to urban centers was just beginning. The highly symbolic uh, occupation of Wounded Knee by members of the American Indian Movement in February 1973, essentially a call to action for better treatment of the Indian communities. The subsequent siege by federal marshals led until May of that year, and the Indians surrounded their arms in exchange for a promise 
the grievances would be negotiated. The siege attracted attention to the needs of Native Americans in South Dakota throughout the United States. It also sparked the National Native American Reform Movement, which influenced the passing of important congressional self-determination acts and prompted an increase in federal assistance. By the late 1990s, South Dakota's Sioux communities were engaged in a variety of advocacy and cultural renewal activities, including a broad revival of ancestral ceremonies. Uh, two significant issues persisted into the early 21st century in South Dakota, first being the lack of resolution in the matter of the legal seizure of the Black Hills surrounding an era that occurred in 1877, and the second one being the management of the Missouri River. By the early 21st century, the Black Hills funds established by the federal government had exceeded $100 million. But the, tribes continue, but the tribes continue to refuse to accept any monetary settlement without the permanent resolution of their ownership of remaining federal lands in the Black Hills, regarding the Missouri. The Flood Control Act of 1944 allowed for its damming and development. And more than 50 dams were subsequently built on the Missouri and its tributaries. Hundreds of levees and flood walls constructed throughout the basin. Although these actions have been controlled, uh, River to agree, there was excessive flooding by tributaries in 1993. There are those who claim that the damming has not allowed the water to reach attendant farmlands and that animals species have been threatened. Another major criticism was that the large amount of silt was being deposited by in the reservoirs. Finally, Sioux headlands have been taken for the creation of the dams. And the reservoirs that were created through the Pick Sloan Plan resulted in flooding of reservation land. The U.S. Congress authorized payment for the damages and rehabilitation of Sioux lands. But throughout the 1980s and 90s, tribes requested additional compensation for their losses. The Water Resources Development Act of 1999 initiated the return of some of the areas along the Missouri River reservoirs to the tribes, but the final compensation amount for damage awarded to Sioux has not been determined. The Missouri River Protection and Improvement Act was passed in 2000, which aimed to reduce silt and sediment buildup in the reservoirs. Even as the situation remains an important issue, some environmentalists argue that the river should be returned to its natural cycle of flooding and drought. Speaking of violence. <laughs> yeah, speaking of violence. Uh, you started um, studying radio and television when you first started studying? Um, yeah, actually, it's probably where my interest in stories came from. I wanted to go to school for uh, film but then I got accepted into the College of Liberal Arts and I've been interested in anthropology anyway. Yeah. I've been reading about it and stuff just for fun. And then an option for my major and I could do an internal transfer if I wanted to. I went to the University of Texas at Austin. And then after my first semester, I decided that that was what I wanted to pursue, not necessarily, I never had a feel that things they teach you in studying anthropology or 
not only extremely useful, but I think extremely important to understand how people relate to each other, understand how we got to where we were today. The part of my interest in all this stuff is um, the origins of things. Where did ideas of how we're supposed to behave come from? Where did ideas of how things work originate from? Why am I supposed to speak this way? Why am I supposed to dress this way? Why do these symbols that people use hold so much power? And who used them beforehand? I mean, the Egyptian Ankh, have you seen that symbol before? Like a, it's like a cross with like a loop on the top of it. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, predates Christianity, but it's so similar. And I think it was actually used, um, I think they used it in Egypt when there was a church of Christianity there or something that I read. I can't really recall the details. Um, but you look at symbols like that or when I was looking into the Egyptian creation myth, um, I started researching the eye of the eye of Ra, the eye of Horus. It's all very, as soon as someone sees it, they recognize it, but it's, one of those things is kind of unattainable because they've been out of the multiple sources that I've seen, they're the same thing or they're two completely different things. And you know, the eye of Horus is protective and the eye of Ra is more dangerous in its association with the sun. And then you have all these other cultures and all this other lore that um, uses the eye as a very strong symbol, like um, the all seeing eye on the dollar bill but, sorry, I kind of went off on a tangent. But um, just the further you go back, I always have this idea in my head where, you know, these are things that humans made up. Like these, that's, you know, it's been said that culture is all that is human made, learned and transmitted. Yeah. I think it's funny, like the older uh, culture, it seems like they're more, like importance to it's like the sun and the moon, you know, like the sun's very important for like they need to grow their food and everything. Yeah, and imagine like being one of these ancient people and not knowing, you know, everything that we know now and just seeing this big freaking bright thing in the sky every day. Like, how did how is it traveling? You know, you have. Yeah. Apollo's chariot or you know Egyptian myths are also the the sun god is traveling across the sky or being pulled all the um Egyptian imagery of the sun disc uh which is the Aten um and that was one of the stories of like the eye of Horus there's actually like the left eye is the represents the moon god, and then the right eye represents the sun god, and it's just a big mess. But all, like I was talking about archetypes, like you're saying, you know, the sun and the moon and all the elements of nature and explaining how they work, it's very important because that's how they survive, you know? Yeah. We're getting to like, uh, I don't know, I'll, I'll get like 
like Aztecs were weird too. Then you have like Aztecs and like I think like a blood sacrifice and everything. Mm-hmm. Aztecs and like oh, they're not, like they're not joking around. Aztec. Yeah, there's a lot of. Yeah. It's there's a lot of blood sacrifice, right? Yeah. It's like they also. I mean, like I said, the oral traditions predate the written traditions and these things have existed since we were able to ponder life and death or existence. So they didn't just see a person as, you know, a singular being and then one day it's just like dead, right? It's like there, there was some energy inside that person somewhere. Where did it go? I don't know. Blood is life. All the sacrifices. It's all very. Um. Also, you wonder. I was just wondering this, like last night. You know, like how, like, um, Vikings. You do like pyres and stuff. Yeah, it's been a minute since I looked into Viking stuff, but I dimly recall what you're talking about. I was wondering, like, how they ever figured out figure out they did that because everything would be like, burned down. So I don't know how they would find anything like artifact. I guess they would find artwork about it or written about it. Yeah, usually the stuff is um when it does predate writing, people are still telling stories about it. Yeah. I mean, even after writing's invented, not that many people know how to do it. It's a very select few, so they're still using these oral traditions. Traditional societies still do it today that don't use writing. Um but it's written in poetry, it's written in, you know, images, or paintings. Yeah. Actually, uh, one of the Roman ones I was looking into, um, the term the Golden Age. Yeah. You know where that comes from? Uh, not, I don't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, I had to brush up on it. Um, it's one of Hesiod's four ages of man. So there's like the golden age, the iron age, um, dark age, or is it five ages? Bronze age, age Ooh. of Are we talking about the like different, uh, much like the iron age, bronze age, um, different, like, I think it goes, goes by like, what kind of, um, equipment they were using that time like the um it's similar but when we're usually when you talk about the iron age and the bronze age and the stone age those are um archaeological yeah eras um hesiod's ages are uh more mythological he doesn't actually know when these metals were invented um, but the golden age was the age where, uh, man lived and intermingled with the gods and they aged, but they always looked youthful and they didn't have to work for food and blah, blah, blah. So when people are talking about the golden age, that's where that comes from. And like, no one really knows that, you know, yeah. but we still use it today. Pretty cool. So, your point about the pyres, 
somebody wrote something about it or drew pictures of it and they figured it out. <laughs> I think it's like, like historically very trivially recent that reading and writing is like come on like a common thing for everybody. I think there used to be like one person who would know how to read and write and mm-hmm. tell everyone the story and they would pass it on through oral tradition and stuff. And that was a big problem with the English. Just didn't like it. And then King James Version had to write a book and he wrote all these books and stuff. And, and America happened. And what happened? <laughs> America happened. <laughs> Boom. Just like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thunder Horse. Have you read, did you read anything about the Thunder Horse in your research? Um, I think I read something about the Thunderbird. It flapped its wings and thunder came out or something. Yeah. Giant bird. That's a giant, like, sea serpent thing. But the... Ron Barrett Institute did an article on the Thunder Horse. He has a, a picture of some kind of skeleton here. I'm not sure what it is. Looks like a brontosaurus. Looks like a pre. Like a oh, prehistoric brontosaurus right now. Uh, when it comes to cryptozoology, everyone has their own personal option on what is considered a cryptid and what is not. Some believe the creature in question has to be monstrous in size, terrifying in appearance, and have had numerous science encounters before it can be considered a true cryptid. Others feel that real cryptids are elusive animals that skirt the border between the real and the supernatural. Creatures that never been in age and are responsible for the same kind of science for well over 100 years. But then there are the realists, the ones who feel that a cryptid is simply a creature that hasn't been fully categorized by science and has found itself in the middle of a mystery trying to figure out what it is. The realists look at all aspects to try and solve the mystery. How does the creature in question link up with the animals in its area? Could it possibly be an already known creature with a simple genetic mutation cause it to look different than what people are used to? Are there any other historical legends or folklore to maybe help pinpoint when this creature started showing up? And the testing of its bones help reveal the DNA of other creatures. It's genius. Uh, wait, hold on. Hold on a second. The last, <laughs> the last one that doesn't sound right. You're told that for, for a creature to be a cryptid, it has to be unknown. It can't be a cryptid if its skeleton has been discovered and categorized. Can it? The question is, yes, it can. Yeah, that's like with the, I think there was, like, in the, like Middle Ages, they were discovering, like, dinosaur bones. They're like, oh, there's dragons. And they made up yep. stories about dragons. <laughs> They make stories about dragons and giants. And they found like a uh, man with bones and like they thought it was like a cyclops, I think. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, answer is, uh, and the creature below is a shiny example of how that works. In the early days of North America, long before the creation of countries and state borders, Native American tribes, effectively known as the Sioux, also as Lakota, made their homes from the present-day border of the U.S. and Canada, all the way down to Nebraska and Iowa. Within the 
occupied range was a Sioux tribe known as the Senti Dakota, a tribe that primarily resided within the eastern area of modern-day North and South Dakota, Minnesota, and northern Iowa. It's from this tribe that the legend of the cricket, known as the Thunder Horse, well, horse, Boston, <laughs> that word, as with all the American tribes, the First Nations peoples, the Santee Dakota had legends that explained how things in the world around them were created and how they worked. One of these legends, which originated from before the 1600s, talked about how the thunderstorms were created by the ancient thunder beast known as the Thunder Horse. The Santee Dakota legend told of how the Thunder Horse was a creature from way back in time that disappeared from the open plains around their camp before their arrival. Instead of simply disappearing and never coming back, Thunder Horse moved up into the heavens where it could occasionally reappear on Earth to hunt bison that occupied the dirt dry plains. Great. Were you on uh, about the, like, you think cryptids are like supernatural monsters or like unknown species? I don't know. I'm kind of back and forth because, you know, one reason I don't, I'd be re very reluctant to ever claim to be an authority on anything. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, not feel like you have to have really intense credentials to claim that anyway. But I believe the more I learn, the less I know just kind of reminiscent of like Buddhist thought. Um, but anyone who claims to know everything clearly doesn't know anything. <laughs> um, there's just so much that we don't know. I'm, I wouldn't want to say that I'm sure about the non-existence of something. But it's, Cool to talk about the stories and I'm curious about the evidence for them and it's hard to ignore the fact that people can I mean like I was talking about archetypes there's a lot of it is the explanation of things that everyone can see therefore it would make sense that they would be trying to explain them in similar ways but at the same time there's little details that it's hard to explain how the same people who supposedly never met came up with those same details. And that's the mystery about it, which I haven't looked that much into cryptozoology, but, um, that way, yeah. with, the, that way with the Thunderbird, like Thunderbird is like everywhere. Like every, almost every American culture has it mm -hmm. in the North America. I think it's probably just a, probably like a big bird somewhere. Right? They're just like, there's big-ass birds. <laughs> and, oh. yeah, sure. and thunder's scary, so they're probably big, scary birds. You have, um, you have giant birds in North California. I know you do. Like, you have, like, uh, condors out there, I think. I don't know. I don't think I'd be the right person to ask. I have seen a hawk hanging out around here. I know, like the bald eagle's huge. It's way bigger than you think it is. Yeah. Like a small child. 
watch your kids. They're going to fly off with them. It's interesting um, talking about having these similar explanations. If you do think about the bird and the sound that it does make when its wings flap. And then you think about thunder as being a magnification of that sound. It kind of makes sense. And in a lot of uh, folklore is warning about certain things, right? Definitely about um, sound because it's dangerous. I don't know if you're worrying about like thunderstorms or about the bird. Maybe both. Well, birds are predators, right? Yeah. By nature. Um, and then in storms, the way we think in our society about danger is very different from a traditional society. Um, you have, I can't remember what society that was, but I was reading about um, an anthropologist that uh, was going on a study. He had people from the society with him to show him where to go, help him out, he was paying them. Um, and he wanted to camp in a certain place and they were like, that's ludicrous because a tree could fall on you. To us, it's like, okay, the likelihood that a tree is going to fall on me is fall on me is extremely low. Why is that? Like, we're terrified about, you know, heart attacks and car crashes, not trees falling on us. But to them, it's happened enough to where that fear is enhanced. It's a way of a mode of survival. So, to a traditional society, a fear of thunder and the accompanying lightning not only is it terrifying because you can't explain that, but you know, it can cause things like trees. If you like weird and strange history as much as I do, then I have the podcast for you. I'm Jason Horton, host of Strange Year. Each episode, I break down the strange history and cultural happenings during that year, like 1977, the WOW signal, 1963, Three Tramps Theory, 1844, the Millerite Movement, 1997, the Phoenix Lights, 1896, the Shortest War, 2004, Benjamin Kyle, 1518, the Dancing Plague, 1985, the Move Bombing, 1972, Remote Viewing. So to get your weekly weird history fix, pause the podcast you're listening to right now and subscribe to strange year wherever you listen to podcasts to fall things to shake look into that like different like things that one society doesn't seem dangerous and another society does where it comes from look into it's pretty cool i was reading a book um by jared diamond which is where i read about the story called the world yesterday and it's a really large book yeah so i'm kind of mad at myself for committing to it um, but he does, he goes over an extremely wide scope of subjects, but that was one of the things he was talking about is, um, you know, how different societies view danger. 
the functions of fear. Um, what did you find out about, what, do you say, what does he say that the functions of fear are in his book, Irretrievable? Um, pretty much the same thing. They're saying like, it is useful for us to reflect on what we actually fear and the way we uh, behave to avoid those dangers. You know, I mean, a, a fear can seem unfounded. You know, you think of a kid saying like, oh, I'll be fine, like that's never gonna happen. But um, maybe the reason that people don't get hurt as much from this thing that they fear is because they actually take measures to avoid getting hurt. Like uh, people are more afraid of crossing a red light or something. Yeah. Likewise, measure, um, if you were to take a survey or something, you can measure what a society is most fearful of and look at those things that they say and it reflects what's going on in that society. Like if you, uh, America during the time where everyone's terrified about being nuked like you think about how many people have died from a nuclear explosion versus old age yeah. over a certain time scale it seems unfounded but you know during that time it made sense to them that makes sense right now <laughs> yeah right <laughs> you're like i'm terrified but I'm pro it's more likely i'm gonna get you know, hit by a car, but yeah, yeah, whatever. That's weird. I can't, I can't live in like the Cold War. I'll be stressed out all the time. Yeah, no, I'm not normal enough to get away with living in a time like that. Uh, when the Thunder Horse decided it was time to hunt the bison, it would leap down from the heavens and would create a thunder when its hooves hit the earth. The mighty beast would then chase the bison across the open plains in hopes of striking and killing them with its large hoofs. As the thunder horse gave chase, the bison would run with such speed that their hoofs would create sparks over the rocks and dry ground. These sparks result in the lightning that accompanied the growing storm. As the chase progressed, a large amounts of rain would fall behind, thus creating a full thunderstorm. Once the storm was in full force, the thunder horse would fall his bones would turn to stone and lay flat upon earth. These bones would then be found by hunting parties and brought back to camp where the legend of the Thunder Horse would be retold. Uh, now you may be wondering, how does the Thunder Horse qualify as a cryptid since it's obviously a story made up to explain where storms come from? Well, that's where it gets interesting. You see, after large and powerful storms, tribe members were actually finding large stone-like bones upon the earth. Bones they did not recognize as blind to any known creature they rarely encountered. So an unknown creature was leaving behind bones that could not be explained. That perfectly sums up what cryptid is. But the story doesn't end there. When American paleontologist Anthony Marsh heard about the legend of the Thunder Horse and the occupying tales of large unknown bones in Dakota area in 1875, he needed to find out if there were any truths to the story. 
when the Marsh arrived in the Badlands area of South Dakota and began asking about the legend of the Thunder Horse, he was presented with an incredibly large jawbone from a tribe member by the name of Young Man Afraid of His Horses. A given jawbones was not recognized as anything from any known animal in the area and within its morals nearly three inches wide. The young Sioux told Marsh that the, this was their true jaw of a thunder horse, that more could be found within the area after heavy rain. He was told that the rains were needed to soak the ground and cause the loose earth to slide off the hills and surrounding canyons to expose the bones below. With this information, Marsh set out with the team to discover the Thunder Horse for himself. After a few days and a few storms, Marsh and his teams were successful in locating the bones. The Thunder Horse had been found. Not long after determining the area was a good location for further research, the team got to work digging up as many bones as they could. After weeks of digging in the bylands of South Dakota, the team had uncovered a complete skeleton. Creature they had unearthed and fully assembled at a later time stood nearly eight feet tall at the shoulders, with nearly sixteen foot in length and a Y-shaped horn <clears throat> upon its head. Four toes on each foot and looked almost like a rhinoceros. Rhino. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as it turns out, the creature that had dug up was known as a mega crops, a rhinoceros-like creature that was related to horses and went extinct between thirty-three. And 38 million years ago. That's crazy. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Uh, although the micro crops had a horse rhino, the horse rhino that uh, <laughs> already been discovered and named by Joseph Lely in 1870, it still lacked a proper family order. Because of this, Marsh created the family order. Uh, Brother Ladai, which was translated from Greek, means. Thunder Beast, Marsh chose a name as a way to pay homage to Sue's legend of the Thunder Horse. So how exactly does the Thunder Horse qualify as a cryptid? The reason is that the creature was not at one point known only through legends and stories, but was very much real to those that experienced it in some way, much like many other cryptids. The Thunder Horse could have long been remained nothing but a legend that wasn't before a work of one man who made his goal to find the story that was based on or truly just a legend. Very practice exactly what cryptozoologists do to try to solve a mystery surrounding an unknown creature. The other reason that the Thunder Horse is considered a cryptid that falls within one of the categories on George M. Albert's cryptozoological classification guidelines. These guidelines, which can be found in volumes one and two of Mysterious uh, Creatures, a guide to cryptozoology. I should read that book. I can find it right on this one. <laughs> I need to know more about this rhino horse. We're great to help how better on creatures that fall on the upside of mainstream science. The category that the thunder horse fits within is number five of ten. It states that any creature in the category is considered a lingerling. Classification is given to the survival of creatures known from the fossil record that are believed to have survived to modern death, modern times, much longer than previously thought. Uh, remember, it was truly believed by the soup that this creature was from way back in time, but still being seen and in a way alive during their lifetime, hunting down the local fauna of the area. Discovery of the bones only solidified their belief that this creature was real. Because of the strong belief that the evidence found out was possible, 
somewhat verified existence was able to meet the requirements from official cryptic classification. It was because of that classification that the Thunder Horse became one of the only cryptids to both truly exist and not exist at the same time. You can't have <laughs> you have two different things happening at the same time. That's folklore. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it's a I said it's like they found some bones and they found some giant horse rhino thing coming from the sky. I think now horses for some reason. That's terrifying. It's a horse eating a buffalo. It's cannibalist. It's like a carnivore, a horse carnivore. I couldn't. I couldn't even tell you. <laughs> A horse rhino, a flying horse rhino eating buffalo. Sounds kind of like a unicorn, doesn't it? But like, yeah, a big hungry one, a hungry unicorn. Okay. I like some meat. A horse I likes eating meat. <laughs> I like lightning on its hoofs when it lands on the ground. Oh my god. It's interesting how there's a lot of uh, like mythical creatures are combinations of creatures that already existed. Yeah, like in the Greek and Egyptian mythologies, like so much any like you're like chimeras and a bunch of anything on a, like you put wings on anything, it's got new yeah Pegasus and um. you look at how the animals behave, though, it makes sense. Like, yeah. those are cute to us, but they were terrifying. So terrifying. And there's, why? I gotta, I gotta brush up on my Greek mythology. My Greek mythology. Me too. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, Roman mythology takes a lot from Greek mythology and Egyptian, which Greek did too. But in their, uh, in the evolution of the eon of gods, that's, you know, kind of diverges from Greek mythology a little bit. It's so complicated. You have to have like lists of all these deities, especially Egyptian. It's like, is it Ra? Is it Atom or Atom Ra? Or whose eye does this belong to? I, don't... I do have um, the Egyptian creation myth here, if that's something that you would like to hear later on. Oh, definitely. <laughs> you just let me know. You can tell it right now if you want to. Yeah. Um, I had to like note take it a little bit because I cannot remember details and save my life. But I wanted to uh, I have the origin myth of Rome and then I looked into the creation myth of Egypt. Um, and of course the difference is that the origin myth is like the certain place, Rome, and then the creation myth is the world and the universe. But the 
like I said before, it's difficult to pin down one story as the story that's used. So there's little details that have been changed. I tried to um, look into the divergence a little bit, but like I said, it's really confusing. Um, but it also explains where the Eye of Ra supposedly originated from. So according to the Egyptian creation myth, uh, one thing that everything seems to agree on is that in the beginning, there was nothingness. Yeah. Um, so, so dark. That's hmm? a pretty much a theme in like almost every creation myth, even like Christianity, every time it's nothing. I think in I know in Greek it's like chaos and darkness and so the just chaos and nothingness and, and yeah. there was something. It's always where the scariest stuff comes from, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, darkness, chaos, water. Yeah. Um and the void, or at least in one version in the void existed Heka, which is the god of magic and held the power that enabled the gods to make everything possible. Just kind of existing in there. And then out of the nothingness uprose the primordial hill, uh, which the god Atum or Ra or Atum Ra, depending on what you're reading, um, stood on top of. The uh, story goes that he mated with his shadow. Okay. And, <laughs> okay. And he gave birth to two children, Shu, the god of air, a boy, and then Tefnut, the goddess of moisture. Um, in some versions, he, I think he spit out, <laughs> he spit Shu out of his mouth and then vomited out Tefnut. <laughs> um, so Shu gave uh, the principles of life to the world and Tefnut gave the principles of order and they went out and they established the world. Um, eventually Atum began to grow concerned about what his children were doing and if they were okay. So he removed his eye, the eye of Ra. Oh, by the way, I don't know if my pronunciations are 100% correct. I'm taking mm -hmm. a guess on most of them. Yeah, same. From what I remember. Um, so he took out his eye and he sent it in search of his children. Uh, one version I've read, uh, it finds Shun Tefnut, Tefnut, and um, they return with the eye. And Atom is so happy, he sheds tears of joy, which water the fertile land of the primordial hill and give birth to humans. Fun. Um, the other version that I saw, the eye finds, I think the eye found the children. Uh, it refer, refuses to return with them. Uh, they go out and try and force it to return. And in the struggle, the eye begins to cry and the same thing happens. Either, so, ha either happy characters. tears or sad tears. Huh? So it's either happy tears or sad tears. Yeah, either. I didn't think about that. That's kind of an interesting difference. Either humans came up from, or came about from joy and happiness, or they came about from sorrow. 
cool story. I like that. I don't know about him like very much like masturbating with himself to create his children though. It's been a mouth. Yeah, that's the version that I saw that he actually like just masturbated. Is a uh, where's the eye of Horus come from? You know, I just read about that. Hold on. And I know I took some notes on it somewhere. Because I was trying to figure out, like, what's the difference? One of the differences I saw, um, if you're trying to uh, identify if you're looking at the Eye of Ra or the Eye of Horus, assuming they're not the same thing, is that um, Horus is usually depicted as a, is it a hawk head or a raven? Yeah. Um, so, oh yeah, I'm here to... So usually those, um, is it a hawk? It's gonna drive me nuts. Or bird. Some kind, some kind of bird. Okay, thank you. Bird. A hawk raven, a falcon. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, there's like imagery of a falcon around the eye of Horus. According to my notes, Yeah, and also in this uh, source, it's also kind of called the Eye of Ra. Seems like they're pretty much interchangeable unless you're like really trying to get down to the nitty gritty of it. Um, and like I mentioned before, the Eye of Horus is a symbol of protection and power. It's, that's part of the reason why it's so um, everywhere is that it was supposed to be a really strong symbol Mm -hmm. Oh, and sometimes there's a teardrop beneath the eye, which makes sense going back to the creation myth. Yeah. Oh, I remember now. Um, Horus and the evil set, who I had a picture of, but I can't find it now, um, battled and set tore his eye apart and then it was healed by in some versions it's Thoth which is the god of wisdom and learning and then in other versions it's Hathor which is uh, Horus's wife she's a goddess of love um, and then returned to him mm -hmm. and that's pretty much all I have on the eye of Horus I can't remember why they fought oh it in a Cyrus myth? Hmm? Could it be in a, in a Cyrus myth? I heard Sour Smith. Oh. <laughs> 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 uh, could it be in the Osiris myth? Yes. What's funny is I just read this yesterday. It's me. I was like, Huh? I could like I could like watch a whole season of the show and like I could tell you anybody who was in it or what happened next day. Yeah, see my memory is just terrible. I'm working on um remembering details though. 
So next time. A white buffalo. What happened with Osiris and Horus? Which I just had on here. Anyway, I won't bore you with the looking it up right now, but next time. Okay. I am ways and horse and cuddles. Heard about this, he chose to help Ra defeat Set. Oh, so, uh, Set was being a little punk. And Ra was like, stop that. And <laughs> Horace is like, yeah, he's being a jerk, Dad. I'll kick, I'll kick his ass for you. But... <laughs> Verbatim. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fine. I was gonna say I think Set. I kind of remember now. Is Set and Seth the same person? That's different. I think so. I can't remember. I meant to look that up earlier because I was wondering the same thing. But um, he, I think he drowned Osiris. He was brought back to life. Yeah. And then Osiris, uh, he tore Osiris apart and dispersed his body parts. And then Isis went to look for him. And he was there. And... Sounding familiar? I think it's very, like, very similar to the Christian, the Christian myth. Like, he was a born a virgin, died, came back. Yeah, that's actually another uh, archetype is cycle of birth and rebirth. Or life and death. Yeah. A lot of um, things are based on uh, cycles, like seasonality, you know? Uh, yeah, Isis goes around and puts Osiris back together. And something. <laughs> I don't see that, I don't see that movie. I do watch, I do I just like an animation of that. I can do it in like in, like in CGI, I have a, in the animation of Cyrus Smith. I'm always afraid of like watching things like that though, because I feel like they're, which is dumb because I feel like they're not historically accurate, but then you're talking about myths and legends and the fact that they're all, they are what they are because they are changed over time. Yeah. Shouldn't really be a concern. I wonder how I could, People would think about mm, like movies today, how they would people from like a thousand years from now would think about them. Like the same way as we do talking about these Greek and Egyptian mythologies. Mm -hmm. They'll be like, oh, there's similar similar stories involved. Like this is the same story, is that different studios made it. Much. Um, the white buffalo are sacred to many Americans. Lakota uh, Sioux Nation has passed down the legend of the White Buffalo, a story now approximately 2,000 years old at many council meetings, sacred ceremonies, and through the tribe's storytellers. There are several variations, but all are meaningful and tell of the same outcome. Have communication with the Creator through prayer with clear intent for peace, harmony, and balance for all living 
and Earth Mother. Uh, spiritually, among Native Americans and non-Native Americans have been a strong force for those who have believed in the same power of the Great Spirit or God. Uh, it matters not what you call the Creator. It matters that you will pray to give thanks for your blessings and trust the guidance given to you from the world of spirit. Many truths about spirit are told hand down from one generation to the next. The legend of the white buffalo calf woman tells how the people had lost the ability to communicate with the creator. The creator sent the sacred white buffalo calf woman to teach the people how to pray with the pipe. Of that pipe, seven sacred ceremonies were given for the people to abide in order to ensure a future with harmony, peace, and balance. Legend says that long ago, two young men were out hunting, and from out of nowhere came a beautiful maiden dressed in white buckskin. One of the hunters looked upon her and recognized her as a wakan or sacred being lowered his eyes. The second hunter approached her with lust in his eyes, dying her for his woman. A uh, white buffalo calf woman beckoned the lustful warrior to her, and as he approached, a cloud of dust arose around them, causing them to be hidden from view. Okay. Uh, when dust settled, nothing but a pile of bones lay next to her. Holy crap! Horrible. <laughs> the fatal woman archetype. Yeah. As she walked towards this respectful young hunter, she explains to him that she had merely filled the other man's desire, allowing him in a brief moment to live a lifetime, die, and decay. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. White buffalo calf woman instructed young man to go back to the people, tell them to prepare for arrival, to teach them on what to pray. The hunter obeyed. Uh, when the white buffalo calf woman arrived, the sacred bundle, the prayer pipe, she um, taught the people of the sacred, seven sacred ways to pray. These prayers are through ceremonies that include the sweat lodge for purification, the naming ceremony for child naming, the healing ceremony, Restore health to the body, mind, and spirit. The adoption ceremony for making relatives. The marriage ceremony for uniting male and female. The vision quest for communing with the creator for directions and answers to one's life. And the Sundance ceremony to bring for well-being for all of the people. Uh, when teaching the secret ways was complete, white buffalo calf woman told those people she would again return for the sacred bundle that she looked she left with them. Before leaving, she told them that within her were the four ages and that she would look upon the peoples in each age, returning to at the end of the fourth age. Restore harmony and spiritually to a turbo, spirituality to a troubled lamb. She walked a short distance. She looked back towards the people and sat down. When she arose, they were amazed to see that she had become a black buffalo. Walking a little farther, the buffalo lay down, this time arising as a yellow buffalo. Third time, the buffalo walked a little farther. Its sound rose as a red buffalo. Walking a, a little farther, it rolled on the ground and rose one last time as a white buffalo. Of the white buffalo calf, signaling the fulfillment of the white buffalo calf prophecy. Changing the four colors of the white buffalo calf woman represents the four colors of man: white, yellow, red, and black. These colors are also represented in four directions: north, east, south, and west. The sacred bundle that's left to the Lakota people is still with the people in a sacred place on the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation in South Dakota. It's kept by a man known as the keeper of the white buffalo calf pipe, Harville Looking House. The legend of the white buffalo calf woman 
remains ever promising in this age of spiritual alignment and conscious awareness. In today's world of confusion and war, many of us are looking for signs of peace. With the return of the white buffalo, it is a sign that prayers are being heard, the sacred pipe is being honored, and the promise of prophecy are being fulfilled. White buffalo signals a time of abundance and plenty. Though harsh as the world we may live in may be throughout the recorded history, there has been spiritual leaders teaching peace, hope, and balance amongst all life. This was taught by great teachers such as Jesus, Buddha, Dalai Lamas, and Native American leaders. Chief Crazy Horse, Chief, Seat- Chief Seattle, and Chief Red Cloud are, are a field of visionary leaders who committed their lives to bring peace and eternal happiness to all who they touched. They were tangible signs of goodwill towards all men, women, and children. Uh, Legends courtesy of Jim and Dana Riley added March 2005. Good story. What's the story about? Wearing top hat. I'll talk about. Oh, God. What are your thoughts on that story? Um, it just kind of makes me think of, uh, I'd be interested to look at the differences in actual Native Americans from certain groups telling their stories. Yeah. And um, basically white men telling those stories. As a, one thing you learn about anthropology in the beginning is that it was used sounds bad it kind of was bad it was kind of used to try and overtake primitive cultures quote um so when you look at literature from anthropologists way back in the day trying to study Native Americans, you kind of have to read it with the idea that they already assume these people are primitive with a negative connotation um, and that they are being, whether or not they just are interested in learning about the culture, a lot of the time it's like, okay, we're going to overtake these primitive people. There's a lot of stories about like use that like to like bash them in their like or, like oh, word not scam not give them bad PR basically. Yeah, there's a paper that I really like. Um, it's called uh, Hold on. The relation of habitual sound and thought to behavior, I think. Probably. If I get these two papers confused, it's going to drive me nuts. Basically, in this paper, um, he's talking about how people who have studied these primitive languages think that, oh no, on alternating sounds. I'm so happy I didn't get that confused. It's called an alternating sounds. Studying the language of Native Americans, people were trying to say that 
their languages had alternating sounds, which made them more primitive, which meant that, you know, they didn't have a set of phonetic items. They would yeah. make the same sounds, but they would mean different things. Yeah. Which, you know, according to our civilized language, doesn't make sense. It's not evolved enough. Um, but what he explains in this paper is that it's not that the sounds, they're the same sounds that are alternating. It's that based on what language we know, we are kind of predetermined to hear certain sounds. So if you don't know a language, it's hard to listen to that language and actually pick out all the nuance in it. Yeah, like with, like Navajo in those world too, or, or one. Like their, their language is so complicated. Like they need, like it's so many nuances to it, like different words. Mm-hmm. And like the intentions and like the front. It's so complicated that the English and then they love interlingual puns. <laughs> like, yeah. It gets even more confusing. I had a professor that studied Navajo and he lived on the reservation and he was extremely tall and he loved. Um, this pun that they made about him because the Navajo word for tree is G-A-D, God. Yeah. So they told him he was like a god. <laughs> <laughs> Loved it. Um, but yeah, I'd be interested to compare those things and see how indigenous people feel about how white people tell their stories. We probably don't do a very good job, I'll say. We're doing our best, you know? We're doing our best. <laughs> we try. Um, this is like a, we're just Bigfoot. Bigfoot's everywhere. But uh, in South Dakota, there's this uh, version of Bigfoot called the Takohi. Uh, in South Dakota is a rather empty state. Smaller settlements being more common is unusual than the state of South Dakota is utterly devoid of cryptids. The state has a large amount of haunted roads, forests, and buildings, but surprising lack of monster legends, excluding Bigfoot, which can be found in almost every any state. South Dakota, however, is home to a very special Bigfoot that goes by the name Taco Heat. Um, Bigfoot drilling. Six to rural forest forested areas, which they find it easier to hide in. <clears throat> they are often referred to as uh, forest giants and be construed as protectors or guardians of their forests, as their attacks seem to be primarily focused on driving people away from certain areas. Takohi, on the other hand, is seen mostly in the wide open areas. Dragon did prey upon them or simply staring at witnesses. There are many mysterious deaths linked to the foot monster. Those, though those who have seen actually seen it survive, never mentioned anything about feeling threatened. Oddly, Takohi is linked with the mutilation of many farm animals, which isn't something generally associated with Bigfoot. Animals, usually young calves, can be found with their sexual organs removed and blood completely drained from their bodies. Uh, hey. South, that's yeah, <laughs> that's a very uh, like. Uh, uh, not worried, but it's interesting for be over in North America. It's more like 
African Americans. No, Africans do it. They like to eat. Like their like sexual organs are very um, important thing for tradition. Hunts and stuff. Uh, South Dakota has had its fair share of UFO sightings, uh, so it might be have been possible that they were responsible for these things. But those who saw the mutilations firsthand did not describe the damage as being precise or the ever present chemical smell that was consistent with most cases of alien abductions. While animals too have fallen victim to this brutal treatment, it is a science of Takohi. Dragon mutilate animal carcasses that has led the locals to believe it to be possible responsible. Where do you, um, where do you think like aliens come from? Like, the anthropologically, you know, I'd like to look more into actual like all the UFO sightings and everything like that, and like alien abduction stories. Um, I know that there's like different theories about them. Personally, after I had a course where I had to study the Drake equation. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Is it like the w- one where like how likely, uh, um, yeah, there's something alive in the universe based on like where it is and yeah. So it's got like a certain amount of variables and then whatever you get at the end says how likely, specifically, how likely it would be for us to be able to communicate with another an alien species or whatever. Yeah. And after going through that entire, by the way, if you ever take an extraterrestrial life course, it is not just aliens, it's a shit ton of math. <laughs> which was a surprise to everyone. But after going through that entire friggin' equation, you realize, wow, the likelihood of actually being able to communicate is so thin that I don't have high hopes for it. But that doesn't mean I don't think that there would be another, you know, alien species, because it just seems kind of egocentric to think we're the only planet that could, you know, form life. But... Because of that very thin likelihood, that's why I'm super skeptical about um, abductions and sightings, even though they're super interesting. So, especially as they happen, so it's like I said, it's like very unlikely that they're even able to like send like a radio signal to us. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they come over here and every other five years, I don't know how many abductions are. Picking up mm-hmm. people and bringing them back. There's stories about them like taking people and bringing them back to their planet and living there for like a couple a year or so, coming back. Like I don't know, maybe. I'm not. I'm not unknowing, but I think it's very unlikely that's happening. Yeah, but it's cool to read about. Yeah, it's very cool to read about. Uh, many believe the Bigfoot-like creature to inhabit a small stretch of the lens at Sika Hollow. Sika itself, meaning bad or evil, has been referred to as uh, such long before South Dakota was settled for by Europeans. In the 1970s, people were, went missing from the area, but sought to remind those nearby to avoid that place at all costs, especially Native Sioux, other Native tribes. Uh, there were another. 
Did they find those people? The hell? Um, there were another instance where campers disappeared in another part of the state as well. That one is still a complete mystery. Oh, great. Okay. Jesus. <laughs> Police were awful in the 70s. As there was no proof that the Takaki or any other sort of spirit did anything to them, they were simply gone. Okay. Thanks, Thanks police. <laughs> Helpful. Uh, interestingly enough, the stories of Takuhi are leaning in an unexpected direction. With the rise in teen suicides, the locals have begun to spin stories of a nine-foot being that sneaks into towns and urges teenagers to kill themselves. It is believed that this is Native's way of coping with the new and terrible problem. Uh, by dressing it up as a tangible demon that can be seen and heard rather than a psychological problem in young men and women. Uh, this, however, does not explain why some people actually have been seeing the spirit or even taped where he has allegedly been caught on camera. The uh, interpretation of Takuhi paints him in a more spiritual light, a demon or a specter. Fears where there are teenagers and whispers lies to them in order to bring them to an early grave. He is supposedly a dapperly dressed gentleman with a stovepipe hat and a long coat. In some tales, he is used to the over 10 feet tall, peering to second-story windows. Whole apartment buildings have reported seeing him poking around the area. There's no description of his face. But in some stories, he's said to be a normal-looking older man. On others, he's said to have no face whatsoever. Oh, that's creepy. I don't know. No, like, no faces are creepy. On the- yeah. Agreed. Uh, but in some stories, he is said to have a normal... Uh, sometimes he is referred to as Takohi. All is said referred to as Walking Sam. Whether they are separate entities or the same thing is impossible to say. Natives who have seen them will tell you that they are different. But many experts on legends and native lore will tell you that it's most likely is the same legend going through changes to adapt to modern times. Whatever Walking Sam may be, there are many signs in police reports of a tall man in a stovepipe hat, but there are equally many signs of a more beastly figure in some of the rural areas. In the early 1980s, several officers were called out on multiple occasions to investigate a tall man outside of various buildings. One time, they arrived at the scene to find a whole body, a whole family, holed up in a made of couches and whatever furniture they had to find. Once calmed down, they told the police that they had gone to let their dogs through the front door and had spotted an impossibly tall man in the yard standing beside one of their cars. Creepy. The witnesses said that his hips were above the roof of his car. That's really tall. And the dogs were reacting with a great deal of fear at the sight of him. It was enough for them to call the police and take whatever precautions they could within their own home. In 2007, there were several signs of a large man causing a ruckus near the town of Pine Ridge Police officers called to the scene recorded footprints of up to 13 inches in length and 8 inches across. They even catch a glimpse of a gleaming pair of eyes watching them from the tree line brought right into one call. And often they could smell a putrid, musky odor in the area. That sign did, did, the signs took place. Uh, I've always pointed to Bigfoot, but one detail still sticks out. When it's described, the creature they saw as not having a face, and sometimes, despite its priestly appearance, would be wearing a hat. 
stovepipe hat. It's all very strange. And with one more sign, and more signs reported each year. Walking Sam and Taco Heat are unlikely to fade away from Native American folklore anytime soon. Oh. Do they just really not like tall people? They say in the Bigfoot's just like a tall, dapper old man. <laughs> I think so. But it's like, I don't know, I don't know how tall a car is though, but still, like, by the hip, it's like his hip is like at the roof of the car. That's really pretty tall. tall. That's pretty tall. Like, scary tall. You need to get him drafted to the NBA. Just discriminate against tall people. I'm just saying, I was like, like you're saying that how like stories change. Now, I wonder if you always had a stovepipe hat. That was a thing. I mean, that's the first I've heard of it. Maybe I just haven't heard as much about Bigfoot as I thought I did. Where do you get it from? Where does he? What do you buy it from? Does he get dirty? Does he wash it? He... I feel like he would just take it from someone. Yeah. Right. I don't know where we buy it though. Is it tattered? Any questions? Does he have his own hatsmith or whatever person that makes hats is? How does it fit him? Does he shop at Big and Tall? These are the things we need to know. Okay. He's making a killing selling these, selling these coats and hats to Bigfoot. He's like a local business owner. Him and like the cloth like materials, sell some materials, like selling like yard, like yards and yards of material for Bigfoot, like in soap pipe hats and long coats. See, we are creating folklore right now. <laughs> New stories about Bigfoot. Uh, did you hear anything about the spirit mound? Little devils? No. I mean, Spirit Mountain sounds familiar, but that's as far as it goes. Is it like the primordial, primordial mound hill? Yeah. Like a Spirit Mountain Historic Prairie is a state park in Clay County, South Dakota, featuring a prominent hill on the Great Plains. Plains Indians of the region consider Spirit Mountain the home of dangerous spirits or devils. It's, uh, I think it's like a hill and like Things, uh, local Indians were terrified of the hill and would not venture anywhere near it, especially considering it, especially considering it to be a taboo. They believed that just a few decades earlier, sometime in the mid-18th century, a band of several hundred Indian warriors who attacked the diminutive inhabitants of the mound were massacred by the little people who wielded magical arrows in the band attempted to remove the presence of the already Hated little folk had, had dwelt there for many years and were long perceived to be evil. So they hate short people and tall people. Okay. The stuff of legend. <laughs> mm, we got a. Uh, for like, like a 
like you're saying, you're saying earlier about Cody and Thunder. Rabbit Boy. You read about Rabbit, like Rabbit Boy? Another familiar sounding thing. I think I read like three words about it and then kept skimming. He's like a bloody. He's like different. I need, I need like go and talk to uh, from Dakota and Sioux Tribe. Have them tell me stories. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. Oh my god, we've been this for like 90 minutes already. Oh. <laughs> See what happens when you're unemployed? Yeah. Nothing. But what got going on with you? Anything planned? Like a any any books or something? Um, that would be cool. I actually just started. Uh, I've been wanting to do a podcast for a while, and just kind of a website that incorporates that and um, some papers and essays and hopefully some uh, generate some discourse with other people about trying to bounce around different ideas and perspectives. Um, but I just, I didn't get a URL yet, but I just made a website for the podcast. It's called Dissenters and Rejects. And I can send you a link when we're done here, even though it's a Wix site right now. So the I don't really like the URL, but uh, it's basically just to kind of promote um, equality and tolerance and perspective and provide a safe place to discuss different ideas. That's awesome. So hopefully I found a paper that I'd written a couple years ago that I'm going to try and post on there. Um, but yeah, please do check it out. Make sure to post it in the show notes and stuff. Thank you. Well, I'm bad at ending shows. I'm really bad at ending shows. I feel like, like I know I got to end the show because uh, people, like, I'm not going to listen to your show for like 10 hours, Tanner. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you just come up with a um, new awkward ending for every show. Um, I'll have to be on your podcast once you get it like, set up. So yeah, definitely. Keep in touch with me. Um, For real? Hopefully this kind of, I've been a little more motivated about it since I was going to be a guest on yours. So yeah. thank you for that motivation. No problem. I have plenty of time on my hands right now. So I have no excuses. Good luck with that. And everyone should, What's the name of the podcast going to be or name of the website? Again? Um, Dissenters and Rejects. I'll send you the URL because it's weird. Where can people find you at? Let me... I have an Instagram, but I haven't made one for the podcast yet because I didn't have anything to put on it. Yeah. Um, but I will have Instagram. I made the podcast name, but there's nothing on there yet, so I don't think it'll uh, show up. And uh, Twitter, 
And I can provide you with my email as well if you want to just put those on your notes. Yeah. But hopefully I can start to generate some interest and, um, you know, get some ideas out there. Buzz. Help people out. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. It was awesome talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, everybody. This has Monster Legends Podcast. Monster Legends Left South Dakota with Amy Smith. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Monster Legend Podcast. You can find most everything you need to know about Monster Legend Podcast at monsterlegendpodcast.com. There you'll find the social media feed, episodes, and where you can subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. It's all free. It's all available on your computers and mobile devices. So check it out. And thank you. And share with your friends. And don't be afraid to ask me any questions. In any comments or uh, voice message, which you can find in the link down below in the show notes. Thank you. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.